Amen. Good morning. Church looks wonderful, doesn't it? Whoever did that was very good at doing it, so thank you. Um, so we're in this series, God Let Us, and basically we take that passage in Hebrews 4, and there's three lettuces in there that kind of work. And so um, the first week, uh, Jason covered uh, verse 11, which was, uh, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. The key there is that people were missing out on God's rest because of disobedience. I think it's important to keep that in mind as we go through the series today. The book of Hebrews is kind of a bad news, good news type of presentation. There's bad news followed by good news, and it's sort of uh, an interesting way of doing it because we see it throughout all of scriptures. And, And I have some bad news, good news this morning. And so Uh, I did some studying on it, and when it comes to bad news, good news, the vast majority of people, like almost 80% of the people, would rather get bad news first, right? And then the good news second. So I'm going to give you the bad news first. The bad news is I have finally figured out a joke that I can do for the Let Us series, right? I didn't actually figure it out. Somebody gave it to me, and here's the joke, right? So how do you make a honeymoon salad? Let us alone without any dressing, it's sort of so bad it's good, right? Here's the good news. That's the last joke I'll tell you for today. <laughs> for today. <laughs> so the bad news, good news, you see throughout all of Scripture. And one of the main things I think that's really the, the epitome of bad news, good news, is the gospel, isn't it, right? You start off with the fact that we're all sinners, bad news, right? And because we're sinners, uh, the wages of sin is death, eternal death, because the only, Bible tells us, the only uh, forgiveness of sin we find in Scripture is, uh, you know, there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood, right? There has to be this perfect sacrifice for sin, which the Jews of the day were doing in the temple, right? And so, for us today, the bad news is that we all fall victim to sin and our sin nature, and we sin. But the good news, we all know, is that Jesus Christ came to be that perfect sacrifice. He died on the cross at Calvary, and three days later, according to the Scriptures, he rose from the grave, and he lives today that we may have life and have it abundantly in him through the Father, right? That's the good news. That's the bad news, good news. So when we're presenting the gospel, if we don't present both sides of the story, it really isn't the gospel, because the gospel is about what's bad and what Jesus came to redeem. And it's sort of a great way to picture this, is if I drove by your house, Uh, one evening and I saw your car was there and I ran in and I broke down your door, ran into your bedroom while you were still sleeping in your PJs and pulled you out into the front lawn while it was snowing, you wouldn't think that was a good thing to do unless you realized your house was on fire, right? Unless you realized that you were in peril, the fact that I did that good thing wouldn't seem good to you. It would seem very aggravating and insensitive. And so it is with the gospel. The gospel takes a dilemma of man, the peril that we're in, and it overcomes it with the good news of Jesus Christ. That's the ultimate bad news, good news story. And not always in Scripture did it always follow that accord. It's kind of interesting. The only case that I can remember, and I didn't really do a whole lot of digging this week, so don't quote me on this, was um, one time where Jesus gave the good news first, followed by the bad news. Now, it happened in Caesarea Philippi. He's out there with his disciples towards the end of his ministry. They'd been with him for a few years now, listening to everything he had to say. And he's up in Caesarea Philippi, which is a key city 
Uh, it's where the rabbinic tradition says that the gates of hell uh, started, right? There's a cave, and out of that cave comes an underground spring that feeds one of the tributaries to the Jordan River, which feeds into the Sea of Galilee and then down to the Dead Sea. And so they, they called it the gates of hell because if you show this picture real quick, it had on the side of the wall, and I'll show you what a cave is, all these little carved stone inlets where they had statues of the pagan gods, Baal and uh, you know Asheroth and all these different gods, and that's where they would come. And this was considered this mountain. If you show the next one, you'll see this to the left. That was the cave that the water came out. It's collapsed since then, and the water doesn't actually come out of there. It comes out a little bit further down. But that's what they refer to as the gates of hell. Really significant, because if you look at Jesus, I believe that he did everything with a reason, and he did it in a place for a reason, right? So we get to that one big passage where Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, hey, who do the people say I am? You can find the story in Matthew. You can find it in Mark. And he basically says uh, in Mark 8, he says, who do the people say I am? And the people respond, and they say, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah. And there was reasons why they said all three of those people, right? Then Jesus kind of switches it, and he looks at his disciples, and he goes, well, who do you say I am? And Peter immediately says, you are the son of the living God. You're the Messiah. Basically, he comes out and says, you are the Messiah, right? So right here, Jesus then gives what I think is one of the greatest commendations in Scripture, and he says, you know, he says, says to, to him, and he says, um, um, where does it say? Okay, teach on priest. He says, um, you, Summer Barjona, are blessed because man didn't reveal that to you. It was revealed to you from my Father in heaven, right? First Corinthians tells us that nobody could say Jesus is Lord without or but by the Holy Spirit, right? So here we find that... Peter says, hey, you are the Messiah, you are the Christ. So there was no question about the person of Jesus at this point. But it's interesting how things change a little bit. Jesus, before he gets into the discussion of the bad news, says to him, hey, you are Simon Barjona, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I got a feeling that he was either really close to this place or it was in sight because he's making a statement it's kind of interesting. How, now, some people say that the, what he's saying is you are, uh, you are Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church, that the, the rock, you know, some scholars say is Jesus himself. And we find that in, in uh, 2 Corinthians 10 where it says that, uh, that spiritual rock was Christ, right? So it references Jesus. There's no other place in Scripture where Peter is referenced as a rock. Some say it's the confession that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Messiah, and some think it's, when you look at it, it's a statement of how he's going to build his church, that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He's in a place that was a, a full of pagan worship, sort of the epicenter for that. And he makes this great statement about the power of the church. And when he makes this great statement, he goes on to say this, after he makes this acknowledgement of who he is. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. After three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And this is amazing. I remember Peter just said, you are the son of God. You are the Messiah, right? I mean, that's a statement in and of itself. But here's what happens after he says the bad news. Hey, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be killed and rejected. 
Peter does this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Isn't that interesting? He just revealed that you're the son of God, and now Peter feels it's necessary to rebuke him because of the bad news he just shared with them. See, here's the issue. The nation of Israel had this understanding that when the Messiah would come, he was going to bring all these great fortune. He was going to restore the kingdom of Israel like it was in David's time, where they would become supreme again and, and powerful, and that the Messiah would somehow be a military leader as well as a political leader, as well as a spiritual leader, be all these different things. And they were looking for them to bring in, usher in the kingdom in the physical, in the present. And all the apostles seemed to be along the ride because they wanted to be a part of that, right? So guess what? They weren't confusion about who Jesus was, but they had an issue with his plan. Isn't that true with all of us? We're okay when we figure out who Jesus is, but we're not always okay with the plan that goes along with being a believer and what that means and what that calls us to do. It says that he strictly charged them not to tell anyone about him. It's kind of interesting we see that in Scripture a lot. You kind of wonder, wait a minute, you, you just revealed you're the Son of God and all these things are going to happen to you and we're not supposed to tell anybody? Does it ever confuse you why he does that? Right? Don't tell anybody? Because here's the thing. The story wasn't over yet. The gospel wasn't completed yet. He didn't want to just say, look at all these things I'm doing. He's healing the sick and he's uh, uh, making the blind see and raising the dead. That's not the story. The story is what he does through the cross and how he lives again. And you can't tell the whole story until you experience the whole story. So he's saying, don't say anything yet, because they didn't get it, obviously. And so it is with us sometimes. We hear the good news of the gospel. We sign up to follow Jesus Christ, but then all of a sudden, so we're not confused about who he is, but his plan for us sometimes is troubling because we don't like the circumstances we're going through. We don't like the person that he's brought into our life. He doesn't like the issues that are going on right now. We don't like them. Jesus, you know, I thought life was going to be good, which is the danger of just saying one side of the gospel when everything's good and you're going to have health and wealth and all these things because you believe in Jesus. It's just not true. There's another side of the gospel that says you're going to be persecuted because of my name. You're going to fall into hardship and suffer and you're going to have to sacrifice and it's all for your good and my glory. There's both sides of the equation. To me, they weren't confused about the person, but the plan, sort of an oxymoron to them, that Jesus, the source of life, would be killed and the Messiah, the King of Israel, would be rejected by Israel. These are colliding realities that constitute the good news and the bad news in conflict. But in the end, the good news always overcomes the bad news. That's really what makes it so good. See, here's the thing. Human reason doesn't get you all the way there. Empiricism doesn't get you all the way there. Experience in the Christian life doesn't get you all the way there. It requires divine intervention. Amen? To me, I think that when we say Jesus is Lord, we can only do it by way of the Holy Spirit interacting in our lives and uncovering and revealing truth to us that's really there. Because by ourselves, we're blind, right? We were all blind at one time to the truth of Scripture until Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, revealed his person to us. And as life goes on, he kind of gives us the plan. And see, Paul, 
as he's writing this book, he goes on in, in, in Hebrews 12 and he says this. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of the soul and the spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature in, hidden is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of whom, to whom we must give an account. To me, these are the most sobering verses in Scripture. Every single one of us here today are going to have to give an account for every thought and intention of our hearts. Doesn't it make you kind of stop and think for a minute? Jesus said it himself in Revelation 2.23. He says, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and the heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. Think about it. He starts off with piercing the spirit and the soul, right? Your soul being your mind, will, and emotions. And he pierces that with what should control your mind, will, and emotions, which is your spirit, right? Without being born again, you're dead in your trespasses. You're dead spiritually. Our spirit is how we relate to God, right? Once we accept Jesus Christ, we're born again. Our spirit is alive. And at once we can connect with God through his truth. And it should control our mind, will, and our emotions. Because without that, our mind, will, and emotions are controlled by what? The flesh. Our selfish desires. The things that are, are corrupt in us. Because at the core of all things, the heart is desperately wicked above all things, the Bible tells us. When you think about it, even the most secret, remote thoughts and designs will be uncovered. It will discover men to men and the variety of their thoughts and purposes and the vileness of them, the bad principles that are actuated by the sinister and sinful ends that they act upon. That's what it means what he's doing here. And then it goes on to, to joints and marrow. Think about this. He's talking in the spiritual. Like, what do our joints represent, right? Our joints gives us the ability to be flexible and move around and do work, right? Without joints, we couldn't lift anything or do anything or run or walk or whatever it may be. And what he's saying is that when, what, what if I divide your joints, if the word of God comes in and separates those, are you really as flexible as you ought to be as a believer, with other believers that aren't as mature as you or don't think like you or don't look like you or don't act like you? Are you doing the work of the Lord with that which I give you? He's trying to separate what is, what is our life all about. And to me, it hits home when it talks about marrow, right? What is bone marrow used for? Bone marrow replaces our, our blood cells, right? The red and the white and the platelets, right? The, the red blood cells brings vital oxygen to the body. The white blood cells fight off disease and infection the platelets do what they help clot so that we don't bleed to death all are very purposeful and i wonder if he's saying look with your life are you reproducing the things that bring life protect and root out infection in the world or even in your own life to me that's what the word of god does when you really look at it as a mirror it kind of exposes who we really are and sometimes I think it's helpful for us to get downwind of each other or get downwind of ourselves to see what we're really like in the eyes of God, which should humble all of us. To me, it's bad news if I got to really see what Mike Shepard's really like and own it and understand it. 
When I look at that passage, he goes on and he, and he shows you that he's talking about the spiritual when he says, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. To me, I wonder when you think about it, the thoughts and intention of the heart. Are our hearts really set on the things of God and, or are our things really set on the things of this world? What's really driving us in terms of how we interact with others? And this isn't a new concept when he's doing this because Paul, being the ultimate Hebrew, is drawing from, I think, Deuteronomy chapter 6 when Moses was talking about the people of God and he, and he says to him in, in, in verse 8 and 10, says, you shall bind them, he's talking about the word of God, how to hang on to the word of God so it would guide their lives. He says, you should bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In other words, whenever you're doing in your life, this should be what's guiding it, right? In fact, the Jews took that passage literally. If you've seen the Orthodox Jew, if you show this next thing, You'll see that little box is called a phylacrity. They'd put it on, they'd put a Bible verse in there, and they'd put it on their forehead. Or on the middle one, it's on his arm and on his head, right? You see the little box. And then the last picture, you'll see a little thing on their doorposts, and they would put uh, little scrolls of Bible uh, verses in there. And, you know, the goal there is that they're taking that literally. I believe what he's talking about and I believe that when, and most theologians, Christian theologians, believe what he's talking about is that whatever you do with your mind, whatever you think about, because the Bible says how a man thinketh so he is, let it be the word of God that guides you. Do you realize, he says, let it be on the, the frontlet on your forehead, right? Well, in, in, when you look at your brain, where all those cognitive decisions of right and wrong are made is in the frontal lobes here, Right? So you have this Bible verse, and I believe it's a picture, a symbol of saying, look, whatever you, let you, what you want to guide your thinking is God's word. Because then it guides your mind, will, and emotions, right? And then whatever you do with your hands, let it be for God. Let it be honoring to God. Do it like you're working for God. And then on your doorpost, whatever you do in your home. Train your children, teach them, hospitality, all those things. Let it be a sign of whose you are, that you're living for God. So Paul's drawing upon this as he brings his bad news sort of to these believers that's saying, look, the word of God is going to search you out. The Bible says the word of God is a schoolmaster that leads us to Christ, right? It's something that's supposed to get inside you and make you turn yourself sort of inside out so that you see yourself for who you really are takes the most prideful person and helps them to be humble. To me, it's amazing when we really think about what it does. See, the word of God is powerful, is it not? It is so powerful. When God sets it in and home by his spirit in your heart, guess what it does? It convinces powerfully. It converts powerfully. It comforts powerfully, and it contends powerfully. That's why we always focus on the word of God. you got to be in the word. Are you doing your devotions? Are you in a growth group? Are you, are you enriching your lives with the word of God? David said, I hide your word in my heart so that I may not sin against you. Because at the end of the day, it's about obedience, right? How do I know if I'm being obedient if I don't know what it says? Where do I go for comfort? The word of God. Fear not. Don't be afraid. When God talks about his endless love for us, unconditional love for us, how does it convert? It takes somebody who's blind and lost and makes them see and gets them to the place where they're born again and saved in the kingdom. 
it contends for the faith because it helps you understand the truths and the principles that you should live by and why they're good and why he gave them to us. It is so powerful, it pulls down strongholds of the enemy. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 6 says, For the weapons of our warfare are not flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Amen. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience. Isn't that interesting? He's saying here that, you know what? It's powerful. It convinces, it converts, it conforms. It breaks down strongholds. It raises the dead. It makes the deaf to hear, the blind to see, the dumb to speak, the lame to walk. It's powerful to batter down Satan's kingdom and to set up the kingdom of Christ at the gates of hell and in spite of the gates of hell. It's how powerful. He was trying to convince his disciples that, look, I'm going to go. I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer. And I'm leaving you not alone. I'm leaving you with my power, my word, my spirit. And you know what? It's so powerful that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. To me, that's good news if you look at it the right way. Yeah, it, it exposes us. It exposes us for who we are and what's really inside of us, right? And without the grace of God and without the word of God, it's amazing how bad we probably would be. Left to ourselves, we always drift. The Bible says no one seeks God unless he draws him first, right? As believers, when we're saved for a long time, we want to think we got it all figured out. We got it all together. But yet... We struggle with some of the core principles of Scripture in our lives. To me, I love it because he goes on to the good news. And he brings it home, and it really makes a lot of sense. If you go to verse 14, it says, Since then, in other words, hey, the Word of God and everything that goes on is going to really show you about who you are, but guess what? Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold fast. Let us hold fast our confession. Hold fast gives you this picture that you're you're hanging on grip tight to the truths that he's given us about himself. The confession of who Jesus is, what Peter said, you are the Christ. I couldn't think of anything to really illustrate this except... When I was in the Army, I was going through officer basic course uh, down in, I was in the infantry, and uh, I was going through my officer basic course down in uh, Fort Benning, Georgia. And uh, when you're there for a while, it's about a four-month course, and while you're there for a while, they do this one thing. It's all about building confidence in you as a leader and helping you to be uh, able to make quick decisions and using principles that they give you to make those decisions at any time in any kind of intense pressure that you may experience in warfare, right? So they do all these things that sometimes don't make sense, but you get it after you're done. And so one of the things they made us do is they had this zip line. They had this lake, and this is before zip line was cool, right? This was like 30-something years ago, maybe longer than that. And so they had this tower that was uh, 10 stories high. And wait, go back. Go back, and I'm going to show you. Go ahead of me. Go back to the one before. Okay, so down here at the bottom, you'll see there's a, it's barely seeable. There's a tower. This is the new one. They erected a new one. 
and they're going to be a zip line that stretches all the way across the, the, the lake to the other side. It's a long way. It takes 45 seconds travel time. And so what they do is, before you can climb the tower, you've got to hang on a bar for 60 seconds. If you can't hang on the bar for 60 seconds, you can't go up to the tower, right? And so, if you, and so what they do is they show you, hey, you hung for 60 seconds, you'll be able to hang all the way across the lake. What's interesting is, out from the tower, about 10 or 15 feet, they have nets. Because if you fall within the first 10 to 15 feet, it's a pretty hard drive, drop, right? And they have guys in the water, scuba guys in the water in case somebody does. And then as you go all the way to the other side, if you show the next picture, they tell you to make your body in a position of an L, and they got a guy with a microphone, and they'll say, let go, and you're supposed to let go. It's amazing when you see this. Everybody in my platoon hung for the 60 seconds. Nobody did not, was not able to do it. We all climbed to the top of the tower. The second guy off started to go, and within five feet of going, he, he let go. And he missed the nets by about a foot, and he hit really hard, right? And that, everybody else is going, oh, my gosh, right? And then a lot of people, they hang, and they get to this part where they put their body in. Now, if you don't do that, what happens is as you're going and your legs are down, your legs grab the water, and it grabs, grabs drive, and you're no longer to hang on, and you smash the water face first, which isn't very comfortable, right? Some people get so tense that they never let go, and at the end of the line is a giant tire. It's funny. It really is when it happens. And that happens. Anybody here ever do this when you're in the service? Because i got to tell you, it's pretty funny. You see everybody do everything they're not supposed to do because they weren't paying attention or they were just so gripped by fear because they were trying to hang on. It's kind of an interesting thing. But for all those who paid attention and did exactly what they said, it was one of the coolest experiences you're ever going to have. You land like that, you skip once, and then you flip over, and then you walk out of there, and it's cool, and you sit and watch everybody else come down. Here's the interesting story. The guy who fell like within a foot of the, the nets, everybody on the other side, because you're, you're, if your platoon, everybody goes across, it, it, it gives you a different score, so when you're battling the other platoons, and so we all started cheering his name, Jared, Jared, Jared from across the lake. He got the guts up, he had to hang for 60 seconds more, climbed all the way to the top of the tower, got on the little thing, started to go, this time he got about 10 feet past the things, and he let go. So I don't know if he had sweaty hands or what the deal was. We felt bad for him because the second time, it was really bad the way he hit the water. But here's what I knew about that. When I held on to that bar for 60 seconds, I realized I could do this because it's a concern. When you get up 10, 10 stories high, it's a little intimidating, right? And when I grabbed that thing and I started to go, the first thing you're, you're thinking is, I don't want to be Jared. <laughs> and you're hanging on. And you're hanging on, and you realize, I can do this. It's the same thing for us in the Christian life. What Paul is trying to say is that, look, I get it. You got issues. You got things that, you know, are unpleasing to God when you really dig down deep, no matter how good you think you are. You got some issues. And that's what the Word of God is supposed to expose so that we can look at them and see them for what they are and then give them to Christ, right, to capture every thought and make it obedient to Christ so that we don't miss out on that rest, right? So we know that we're in the, in the, in the path. And the interesting thing about it is, is that when we trust God and we're obedient to that word, it's sort of like 
hanging on that thing for 60 seconds, you prove to yourself that you can do this. But until you do it, you're really not sure. And it's the same thing with us as the Christian life. When we hang on to that confession of our faith that Jesus is the answer, that Jesus loves me, that Jesus knows best for my life, and we just hang on and we obey him, on the other side, guess what? We figure it out. It's true. We can trust him. He does love us. We can live the life he wants us to live. It's amazing because I think that, you know, we should never, ever do things that deny him. Never be ashamed of him before men. And that we should hold fast to the enlightened doctrines of, of Christianity in our heads and in our hearts and enliven, enliven the principles of it in our hearts and open the profession of it on our lips. In other words, we ought to possess the doctrines and the principles and the practice of Christian life in the foremost of our thinking. It should be what we're all about. Hey, look, we come every Sunday, and let me tell you, worship is great. John and the team, they do a great job. But that's not what we're here for. Jesus didn't die to give us great worship. Jesus died to prove the scriptures and give us the scriptures and the word of God. Because in the passage, it says he's our what? Our great high priest. What does a great high priest do? The great high priest does lead us in worship. He does sacrifice and, 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 and he um, intervenes, right? He prays intercession for the people. But he also leads people in the understanding of the word of God. And think of how great it is to have Jesus leading us in all those things. Right? He's far better than any priest or any pastor that's ever lived because you know what? He knows truth because he is truth. And what a great statement he makes since we have a great high priest. Since we have Jesus, let us hold fast to our confession that he is Lord in our lives. He goes on to say this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Right? That whole passage talking about how weak we are and how, when it's left to ourselves, how corrupt we are and how sinful we are. It says here, wait, we do, we have, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we and yet is without sin. Isn't that awesome? Here's what he's saying is, I know, Mike Shepard, just exactly how you think. And it ain't good sometimes. But you know what? I understand it. I know we can say that a person who's bitter and can't let something go, listen, I, I know you have a weakness. Or somebody who's angry or somebody who's contemplating, you know, doing something they shouldn't do. Jesus says, hey, I was tempted. I understand. That doesn't mean he agrees or doesn't realize you did what you shouldn't have done. It says he sympathizes because he knows we're human and he knows we're fallen creatures and he knows we have a sin nature that left uncontrolled by the Spirit of God will wreak havoc in our lives. But he sympathizes with us. Isn't that awesome? The man who knew he had no sin was the, the just died for the unjust. The word became true so that we could have understanding 
not that we're failures at the Christian life or we can never be good enough, but he understands our nature. And see, he was tempted even beyond what we were tempted. None of us will know what it means to take the weight of the sin of the world on them. And so I think when you look at this passage, the bad news is that if we really look at ourselves as Scripture looks at us, we got issues. But also, if we really look at ourselves the way Scripture looks at us, God knows, and he still loves you, and he still wants to forgive you, and he still wants to work in your life to help you be a better you so that you can look at yourself more clearly and understand how he wants to mold and shape you to make you look more like him. Isn't that awesome? Let us hold firm. Let us hold firm to our confession because we have a high priest who is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. That should give us all hope. That should give us all encouragement. That should all give us the ability to say, okay, I could forgive you because I know you're weak because I'm weak. I could forget about that. I could forget about how you hurt me or how you did this to me or how I did this to you. Can you forgive me? Yeah, because you know what? I'm weak too. And we got a Savior as one to sympathize with all our weaknesses. It kind of makes it easy, right? It should be a no-brainer when we come to a service and the Word of God wrecks you and speaks to you in a way that's personal that get up and come down and say, Lord, I'm going to kneel at your altar and say thank you for speaking to me today because I, un- I know you understand my weakness. God doesn't bring conviction to make us feel guilty. He brings conviction to make us better. To make us better. That should be an encouragement to all of us. To me, the best, I think, verses that sum it up is Romans, and it may give you an idea of really looking, and I'm going to close with this. Four by works, Romans 3.20, four by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. You can't work your way to heaven. You can't earn it. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. In other words, the law and the prophets bear witness to what we know about Jesus. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is Jesus, Christ Jesus. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome? We're weak, He's strong. We're imperfect, He's perfect. And why? Because He's the great high priest that wants us to understand that, hey, I know you better than you know you but I know you and show you who you are so that you can conform to my truth in such a way that it helps you hold on to that confession and it helps you realize the goodness that comes through obedience so that you can enjoy that rest so that one day you'll hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Because really, one day we all know that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. And here's the thing, we ought to have that word not only imprinted on our hearts and our minds, but ready to speak on our lips because it's the word that transforms, right? John and the worship team can come out here and do a killer set. That's not what saves people. 
What saves people is the word of God being utilized by the Holy Spirit. Not creative thinking, not great illustrations, but the word of God. I don't think we should ever be embarrassed about just speaking the truth. And whatever happens on the other end is not our responsibility. It's that of the Holy Spirit to change and unveil and bring people to an understanding of who Jesus Christ is. I remember one time I, I witnessed to somebody, and when I witnessed to him, I mean, I asked him to come to church one day. This is when I was in college. He was one of the cool guys in my fraternity. And he came. I don't know why he came, but he came. And my expectation, along with a couple of my fraternity brothers, was maybe somehow he would hear the word of God and he would get saved. But the invitation came. He did nothing. And nothing changed. In fact, the next day we were doing something in the fraternity, and he was there talking to a couple of the older members of the fraternity, and I was going to say hello to him, and as I waved to him, he started talking to the other guys, and I know they were laughing about the fact that I took him to church and thought he was going to get saved. I struggled with that. It made me feel inadequate. I was embarrassed. And I started thinking, embarrassed for what? I don't save anybody. Jesus does. It's not an indictment on Mike Shepard. It's not an indictment on God. Sometimes it's an indictment on the individual themselves because they refuse to believe the truth the Bible says. There's a lot of people out there that are walking dead. They're never going to accept the word of God. But here's the thing for us. We should never let who we are impugn our ability to go out and tell people about who Jesus Christ is. We should be the best spokesman for the truth of the word of God that there is in the world. Because you know what? Knowing who we are and how we think and things that we've done should inspire us to tell other people that guess what? You can get over yourself too. You can forgive yourself too. Because Jesus is a high priest who can sympathize and understands what you've been through. Let us hold firm to that confession, which means to speak it and share it. I think sometimes we don't know people who don't need to hear the word. We're so close, networked in our own little circle that we don't get outside of the church and meet people who need to hear the truth of God's word. To me, I love this passage because it is bad news that leads to good news that overcomes the bad news that leads to good things in the life of those who are obedient. Amen? Let us hold true to that confession. Let me pray for you. Father, as we get ready to sing and worship you, Lord, I just ask that, you know, as your spirit works and speaks, may your people, Lord, respond in kind. It might be where they're sitting. It might be up in front here. I don't know, Lord, but I, I, I do want to ask this, Lord, if there's any one person here who's never realized that they're a sinner in need of a Savior, Lord, that they would, right where they're sitting, confess to you their sin, and recognize the only one that can forgive it is you. And then, Lord, if they just ask you into their lives, that, Lord, you will come in and make a home and change them and resurrect their life and make them be born again new in the Spirit. And may that Spirit guide their soul, Lord, and lead them in a path, Lord, that has them walk on this journey to become more like you. And, Lord, I'd ask if anyone prays that prayer, they'd just come and say something to me sometime tonight. 
We just want to praise you, Lord. Right now, we want to worship you with what our heart has, Lord, experienced by the way of your truth. Good news that overcomes bad news, that brings good things to those who obey. And I just pray this in your precious name, Jesus. Amen.